everybody and welcome back to your critically acclaimed this is a podcast here at the critically acclaimed network where our patrons get to sponsor an episode of their choice you can ask us to review movies you can ask us to eat a delicious snack like i don't know whatever you want to do we're, we're we're pretty open uh and this time on your critically acclaimed we have not only a fun concept, we have not only an interesting conversation to be had, but we have a guest host. This episode of Your Critically Acclaimed comes courtesy of Jacob Lovegren, who wanted us to talk about our favorite physical media media from that we our, own. From our collections. Our favorite, our, the, best, the best and worst physical media that we own that's in our collections. Uh, and, uh, and the option is on the table for him to co-host. And so here he is, Jacob Lovegren. How you doing, ah. sir? Hi, everybody. I'm doing well. I also go by J-Lo. No, not that one in the letters column. That's where you would know me from. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, how long have you been listening to our podcast, and how long have you been living uh, in the world of film? Uh, I've been listening since critically acclaimed number one, so 2017. Uh, I found you guys through the schmoes now. Um, and then sometime after high school, I decided that I was not going to be the guy who read all the books, so I might as well be the guy who read, watches all the movies instead. Nice. So, so it's a time saver, really. No, poor poor oh, yeah. no los dos. Because it's a time saver. <laughs> I suppose so. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Jacob, Jacob, uh, thank you so much for being a patron. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, what made you want to talk about physical media in your Your Critically Acclaimed podcast? Sure. Well, I've been a DVD collector for uh, since I was about eight years old. The first DVD my family bought was Willow. Uh, and uh, I caught myself even through, once I got my first job in high school, I would still dig through movie bins and start picking stuff up. And even as a Netflix subscriber, I still own uh, quite a number of movies. Uh, a certain amount of it is a collector's mindset and just wanting to have my little dragon horde of things I can have in my house. Uh, and recently, after the Godzilla Criterion box set, I'm around 1,200 titles in my collection. Nice. Nicely done. Nicely done. Well, I'm, I'm excited to find out what you have in that collection. Um, Whitney, what was your first DVD? Do you remember your first DVD? I actually I made it a special point uh, when DVDs were big, because I was already uh, deep in the weeds with VHS. Mm. Uh, in fact, when I was in college, I joined the Columbia House VHS Club. You were the one! I was the one guy wow. who actually did that. I, uh, so for those of us born in the 90s, what, what, what was oh, that? Oh, God! <laughs> <laughs> well... Uh, it, the Columbia House actually started with their record club. They had records and CDs you could buy, and they had a really wonderful introductory offer. You could mail order, I think it was like 12 uh, CDs at first, and then later 12 VHS And they sent you like catalogs in yeah. the mail. You could, yeah. see, you could see what kind of, what, and they, they would, it would just be your junk mail. You'd get this thing randomly in the mail. Join our club, and you'd get 12 introductory videos for a penny. It was great. It's like, okay, I, I can afford a penny, uh, plus shipping. Okay, $20 and a penny, but you still get a bunch of videos. And I did that. I joined, but the deal with the Columbia House Video Club and the Record Club was you had to remember to expressly contact Columbia House and cancel the monthly subscription uh -huh. every single month 
or otherwise they just send you whatever random hot video or record <laughs> they chose for you. Yeah. So if, if it you was forgot, kind of a scam, one it was kind of a scam, and uh, I moved around, and they found me and kept on mailing me videos. <laughs> And it, and it was really kind of a pain in the neck because if you get the video, you can't open it. Otherwise, that counts as you paying for it. Yeah, so you, have you to can't return it. Yeah. Alter the box in a very specific way to mail it back to them. Yeah. It was such a headache. But you know, I I did it because I kept on getting uh, like deals here and there. It's like okay, you don't want our monthly stuff, but here's five more for a penny. So I was like, fine, I'll get Spartacus. Uh, it, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you remember what the actual uh, movie was though? Your DVD. Well, uh, in. Well, my first DVD, though, because I had so many VHS and DVD was a new thing, DVD, uh, when it first came up, wasn't this sort of, uh, it wasn't a disposable medium as it, it's seen today. It was seen as sort of like this Tiffany product. This is really, really high quality. Yeah. They had, they were sold at a higher price point. There were only a few films at first. Uh, a lot of people were really baffled that they had this brand new digital technology and the first film wasn't Citizen Kane. I believe well, the first film was probably like Bounce with Ben Affleck or something. Well, uh, that was later, but yeah, it was it was probably unceremonious. Yeah, some yeah. some something recent, no doubt, like seven Twister was probably it. So I made it a big point. I wanted to make my very first DVD something very special. So I was very careful shopping around for my DVD, and the first thing I wanted to get was the Universal Monsters box set. <laughs> Which, at the time, was, I think it was like $150, uh, and it was astronomical. I couldn't afford yeah. something like that. So I actually had to shop around for a single video otherwise. And I was torn between, and this was 1999 or 2000, mm. so I was torn between getting American Beauty oh. or Fight Club. Which of those two should I get? <laughs> you got Fight Club. Didn't you? I got American Beauty. You! Was, uh, nah. which, which Fight remember, Club is such a cool set. Which, which, uh. which, well, I, the thing was, I was poor. I was working a minimum uh. wage job. I didn't have a lot of money. American Beauty was the cheaper one. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, Fight Club was $30 and American Beauty was only 20 nice. So I plopped $20 down and my very first DVD was American Beauty. Ooh. I don't have it anymore. I, I got my copy for $4. <laughs> I got my copy for $4 six years ago. That's amazing. Uh, for me... Do you, still have your, do you still have that Universal Monsters box set? I, I never got it. I never actually got really? the Universal Monsters box Ooh. set, uh, but when the movie Van Helsing came out yeah. in 2004, uh, Universal put out these really wonderful DVD box set tie-ins that they had big stickers on them saying, you know, go see Van Helsing and here are the originals. And the cool thing was they had each monster in their own box set. Yeah, it's and in all each... the Wolfman movies. So all yeah, the and, and they came Gilman with all movies, of the yeah. movies, which was way better than the original Universal box set. So I got those sets on yeah. DVD, and I still have those. That's cool. I got I got the Blu-ray release of that last year for like fifty dollars. That's Very a good deal. Expensive. That's a good deal. And my October last year, I watched all thirty of the movies from October first to thirtieth, but. I watched 14 of them in the last two days. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot. I, I fell a little bit behind, but it's it's a really wonderful box set. And I was It was in my running for what I wanted to talk about today. Uh, Bibbs, what was your first DVD? Funnily enough, it was Frankenstein, 1931. Okay. That was the very first one. I actually won it at a movie theater that was doing like a midnight screening, okay. and I think I answered a trivia question right, I don't remember, and that was the first one I got. I didn't even have a DVD player yet. So cool. I hung on to that for like a year until I could afford a DVD player. Nice. And then I got a DVD player. But the first DVD I bought for that DVD player, which was actually like my computer 
that I got a computer so I could go to college. And uh, the computer had a DVD drive, and that was my first DVD player. Fancy. <laughs> uh, but uh, my first one that I ever bought specifically for that was Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Okay. So I, mm-hmm. I buckled down on the classics. It's something mm-hmm. I knew I would rewatch over and over again. Um, and uh, I don't think I have either of those editions anymore, which I realize now I must have gotten rid of them at some point. I'm kind of wistful for them now. Makes me feel kind of sad. Yeah, yeah. well, there, there were some really wonderful video editions like old VHS tapes that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. And eventually I just felt sort of silly having the VHS tape of it, and I just upgraded to Blu-ray. Yeah. But yeah, the, the idea of uh, watching the same preview reel that was on the VHS, knowing the parts of the VHS that were kind of scratched out, kind of made it a little bit more tactile, a little bit more dear to you. Yeah. Uh, or when I taped something off of TV and then finally bought a professional copy, it's like, oh, but now I'm used to the TV version. I miss the commercials. Well, I, I would. I was clever. I would edit out the commercials. Oh, but, uh, I wasn't clever. I just memorized the commercials. So I know that if, like, the Charmin Bear, like, <laughs> giggles here, that's when you press play. Um, so anyway, so we're, we're going to be talking about uh, the, the movies that we treasure right now and also the movies that we inexplicably have. Um, but, uh, before we get going, I just want to make, uh, uh, in case anyone's wondering, we, we, the audio on this episode might be a little different. We're trying something new because we're recording online. Uh, so I hope it's all sounds really, really good. Um, and if it sounds a little different than usual, that's why, just in case you're wondering, uh, uh, Jacob, you're in charge here. Who do you want to start? Sure. Well, I figure in, uh, the two shot tradition, we go bad movie, good movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. And let's start. Uh, Whitney's on my left. So let's go for Whitney first here. All right, All right Whitney. Uh, pick a bad movie. Well, I, I I came prepared. This is. I'm not sure if this counts as a bad movie or a good movie. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I have here. Uh, I'm I'm holding it up to a video component. Uh, if you're just listening to the audio, you can't see it. But it, your nails look wonderful. It's just a regular black VHS tape with an orange label that you can barely read. Uh, but this is a 1987 adult film called Rise of the <laughs> Roman Empress. Now, uh, this is significant. Uh, Rise of the Roman Empress stars uh, a porn star named Cinciolina. Uh, Cinciolina was a very popular porn star in Italy in like the mid to late 80s. Uh, and she was a little bit of a cult figure as well. She had a very strange manner. She wore flower garlands and Roman tunics in public, and she was always holding teddy bears. She had sort of a, a I guess it was sort of like a Betty Page quality, like she was very kind of... Uh, friendly and approachable. She had, uh, you know, many uh, very forthright political attitudes that got her in the media a lot. And eventually she was actually elected to Italian parliament. So, uh, so this is one of her, her adult features. She was in it with John Holmes. Uh, And the story of how I came about to get this VHS tape is very odd. Um, this comes from a video store that no longer exists here in Los Angeles. Well, I guess none of them exist. Uh, but there was was a video store on Vermont in Los Feliz, California called Mondo Video Agogo. Did you ever go to Mondo Video? No, that sounds awesome. Yeah, Mondo Video Agogo opened in like the early 90s and they were the place you went to get like the stuff that even vidiots didn't have. Like, they were way off to the fringe. Vidiots was they, another store in LA. Right? Yeah, Vidiots was a very good video store, and they had a lot of the cult stuff, but if if Geek Maggot Bingo that you could find at Vidiots wasn't doing it for you, and you wanted to get, like, 
really off the rails adult features. Yeah, you something go, actually yeah. weird, not Geek Mag and Bingo, no, that, like <laughs> beloved family classic. <laughs> Geek Mag and Bingo is very good. It's a Nick Zed film. Uh, you have to go all the way out to Los Feliz, uh, which is a bit of a drive from the west, from Hollywood or from the West Side, to find uh, Mondo Video a go go. And Mondo Video a go go was run by uh, genuine freaks. These people would have uh, parties and uh, really these kind of riotous, raucous uh, rock concerts out in their back lot for a long time. They hosted something called the Cacophony Society, where people would just sort of dress up like clowns and reenact crucifixions and have bonfires. The local neighbors hated Mondo Video a go go. Uh, and, you know, they, they had like a uh, Gigi Allen performed there once and he uh, violated a sex doll and they put the sex doll in the store. Uh, this is just like a really edgy, off, off the rails kind of place. So, of course, I had to go. I was really curious. And uh, my girlfriend at the time, a friend of ours and I, went there and we were just looking for whatever weird thing we could find. And lo, we found Rise of the Roman Empress. Uh, we had to put in a deposit of all of the money we had at the time, which was just 50 bucks. We were just dirt poor. Was that, would they say 50 bucks, or was it just like, it will take all the money you have? No, they said 50 bucks, oh, okay. which just happened to be all the money we have. <laughs> and they said, you know, and, and if you break it, we keep the 50 bucks. It's like, well, $50 Ooh. is a lot to pay for a single VHS tape. We'll be careful. My girlfriend, <laughs> we watched it, my girlfriend left it in her car. And left it like on the top of the dashboard in her car and the plastic casing around the VHS tape got baked in the sun and it warped to the point where it was like all, it looked like an art installation. It was all like oh, twisty and swirly and disgusting. People always told me when I told them like things, you know, your videos will melt in a car and they're like, yeah. no, it couldn't possibly. Yeah, yeah don't do it, that. It did that. And, yeah. And so we called Mondo Video Gogo -Go saying, hey, we left it in our car. And they said, well, that's it. We're keeping your 50 bucks. <laughs> Oh. It's like, well, we knew the rules, so yeah. we're, we're just SOL here. There's no way we can just sort of return it. Now, my girlfriend also noticed that the outside case had been warped, but the tape inside had not been. So this is uh, this case I'm holding is actually the case of an old blank VHS tape that we had opened up. We transplanted the tape from the, the warped case wow. into a new casing. We put Oof. it in, and it worked okay, and it still works to this day. Oh, um, you could have now, given that back to Mondo Gogo and gotten was, your 50 bucks back. I was so, yeah, I was so relieved that we could fix it that I wanted to call up video, Mondo Video Gogo and say, hey, we can give your video back, can I have my 50 bucks? But my girlfriend, who was, you know, very manipulative and wanted to keep it, uh, <laughs> said, no, no, just keep it. Now we have it. We, it's like, yeah, but we paid 50 bucks for it. You earned this. it. You earned it. No one yeah, can say you don't earn that movie. And the uh, the label on this was also we had to Xerox it from the actual box, so uh, <laughs> you can still see uh, very closely if you look really closely the Mondo Video Go Go awesome. address stamped on the uh, the color copy, which was a novelty at the time Ooh. that we just scotch taped <laughs> to the box. Uh, so yeah, I, I now have this 1987 porno movie starring a member of Italian Parliament in my collection. Uh, I'm very proud of it. It's a very bizarre film. It's dubbed in English uh, very, very badly. Uh, I think they got maybe two actors to do all of the voices. Oh, so they're people wow, are two, doing, huh? That's yeah, impressive. One man and one woman. Yeah, it didn't have to go that far. And they have, and of course. The actors are bored in the recording booth, so they're making up, like, stupid puns during the sex scenes. Like, there's a, a sex scene with a lawyer, and uh, uh, one of the characters says, lick my habeas corpus. 
uh, that's a real thing. <laughs> that's pretty thin. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like a lot of people uh, nowadays don't know how lucky they have it that people actually care about the dubs that they get from other countries. Yeah, like, yeah. nowadays there's some really, really good dubs from other countries, and the whole, like, do you prefer subtitles or dubs is maybe a bit more a matter of taste mm -hmm. and, like, a matter of sort of purity than anything else. But it used to be, if you had a dubbed version of a movie in America, the odds were exceptionally good that no one gave a shit when they did it. Like, no one cared. The acting was, like, haphazard at best, sometimes horribly recorded. And, yeah, so subtitles were, like, a necessity if you wanted to get any sense of what the movie really was. Mm. So that's really cool. I didn't know you had that. That's such a weird story. <laughs> that's such a weird story. I'm glad I could share. That's awesome. Yeah, Mon I don't know Mon anything nearly uh, that, bit, that cool slash bad. Mondo Video Gogo uh, was sort of forced out of their uh, their storefront at one point in Los Feliz because the neighbors hated them. Uh, Los Feliz started to gentrify after a while. Some high-end uh, eateries moved in and some really expensive shops. And this little grungy, uh, completely filthy, freak-ridden video store was just not part of what they wanted the neighborhood to be so there were they actually and Whitney means that from the bottom of his heart for, right? no I I, yeah. I I would have lived there given my druthers yeah. um, and and if it weren't like an hour away yeah <laughs> but yeah it was it was a really wonderful spot where you could find all kinds of freaky things uh, everyone was really horrible in the best possible way and uh, yeah they were they were eventually forced out I think they moved into a new location very briefly and then they were forced out of that one too uh, and it's a tough gig yeah, Mondo Video Go Go, and along with their sister bookstore, Amok Books, uh, sadly are no longer in existence here in Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, but there was a time when there was like a legit counterculture storefront network here in Los Angeles. Yeah, we had some good stuff there for a while. Mm. That's a shame. Anyway, uh, Jacob, who do you want to go next? So I'm going to go next because I also have a movie starring a adult film star okay. uh, as my bad feature. So I... I describe my the movies I've seen as wide but shallow. So, you know, Spielberg, I've maybe seen 12 of his movies, but I've not seen all 40-ish of them. So when I came across um, Paul Schrader, I've only seen Mishima, Life in Four Chapters, and First Reformed, which are movie. both phenomenal films and on different ends of the spectrum. And I ignorantly assumed that everything he made between those two movies was wonderful. <laughs> so, I, uh, about a year ago, was digging through a local Dollar Tree, having seen that they had a shipment of Blu-rays uh, show up. I did get uh, upstream color on Blu-ray for a dollar. That was a great find. Um, but alas, I, I picked up a Paul Schrader joint, and I said, okay... And it's written by Brady Stanellis. Uh, okay. Yeah. Oh, no. And, it's, oh. and it stars Lindsay Lohan. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and James Dean. Okay. But it's Paul Schrader, right? This movie's going to be as good as First Reformed. And I have to say, The Canyons is by far the worst movie I own in my collection. <laughs> you know, it's not good. Now, I, it's, it's quite bad. It's quite bad. Yeah. Now, I will say that in my collection, I do also own Cats, I do own The Mule, I own uh, Robo Vampire, I own some real garbage, but I have an affection for those on a so-bad-it's-good level, but The Canyons is just bad. 
you know, they, they tried. I, th I feel like Lindsay Lohan was eager to work with, like, a renowned filmmaker who's famous for pushing the edge. Uh, wanted to change her image around, uh, get started getting appreciated as a serious actor because her previous attempts to do so, you know, they they weren't entirely her fault, but they, they didn't work. You know, people didn't uh, want to go see I Know Who uh, Killed Me, which is underrated, I feel. Um, and her her uh, Elizabeth Taylor biopic. Um, I haven't seen it. I've heard it's, nothing it's, but bad things. It's cheap, and it's not particularly good. It's not the worst thing ever by any stretch. It's not like... You know, entirely embarrassing. It's just, eh, she's probably miscast. Mm -hmm. um, I have nothing bad to say about Lindsay Lohan's performance in the movie. Yeah. It is definitely, she's she's here and she's doing her best. And uh, you'd mentioned recently uh, how the Spring Breakers was the movie for a lot of Disney Channel actresses to break their image and move forward. And I could I could see her on screen desperately trying to do this and just lacking any real interesting dialogue or direction in order to do that in a in a good way. The movie just feels so um, aimless. You know? Like yeah. it feels like the whole reason to exist is we're gonna make a movie with Lindsay Lohan and, 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 and like and, full frontal male nudity. Yeah. And, and like, a lot of daring yeah. sex. But stuff. we don't actually have a purpose beyond that. It's like a lot of actors say when you ask them like, oh why are you interested in this role? Were you interested in taking your career in a new direction? And a lot of actors will say no, I don't really think like that. I just go where the role is interesting or, or whatever. And this one feels like it was only calculation because the movie barely exists. Mm. It just seems so, like Brady Ellis just sort of dropped some words onto a page and gave it to Paul Schrader, mm. who gave it to Lindsay Lohan, yeah. and that just happened. American Psycho kind of belched, and that was yeah. the, that was the result. So from my from my understanding of uh, so there's only like three bonus features. One of them is uh, Ellis Schrader, Dean, and producer Paul Pope. I'm sorry, Braxton Pope, talking about how the movie came to be. And apparently Ellis and Pope were trying to make a studio movie and it fell through. And Paul Schrader said, "Look, uh, I've got the exact quote here. Uh, Brady Sinellis's work is nothing but beautiful people doing bad things in nice outfits, and it's incredibly inexpensive to shoot." And apparently the movie was literally Brady Snellis was bored, wrote a script, Schrader shot it, they cast some actors in it, and it just exists now. Just, just, it's, it's something we have to deal with. Mm. And um, yeah, again, it's another one of those, I, I don't know, Like it's you're right that it's not entertainingly bad. Like when we look back at the career of Lindsay Lohan, who I think her career is due for reevaluation. A lot of people were way too hard on her over the years. And... This is going to be one of those movies where we look back and it's like, oh, is it kind of like entertainingly weird? Like, I know who killed me or something like that. And you're just like, no, no. this is the kind of movie that gets rejected from Sundance. And yeah, uh, they're, they're trying to be really titillating and it just feels sleazy. Like, uh, Paul, there's something about uh, male directors of a certain age mm. when they start skewing into, like, really heavy sex stuff that strikes mm. me as really creepy. Yeah. It's like when Antonioni was, like, 91 and he made a sex film. It's like, really? What are, what are you doing? Stop yeah. that. I don't know. It, it, it comes across as either insincere or weirdly lurid, and it's not, it's or, or not, in, not fun. In, or in the case of Eyes Wide Shut, buh? Yeah. Uh, it's, well, but that one's not supposed to be sexy, though. That's no, just about it's, sex it's, and jealousy, but exactly. it's not. The, the actual orgy scene in Eyes Wide Shut isn't supposed to be eroticized. No. Yeah. In fact, it's really cold. That's why everybody's yeah. wearing masks in that scene. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, there's, there's a moment. There's one moment in the canyons that I think is so bad it's good, and it's not for any acting reason. It's simply how the production design team decided to display a text conversation between two people in a cinematic way. And the canyons was made after the first six episodes of Sherlock, which I think does it brilliantly, and I think a lot of movies have ripped off the. We'll just pop up the speech bubbles on screen. Yeah, I think it was but, the first one that did that. Yeah. When uh, when Lindsay Lohan's character is texting with a, uh, an anonymous stranger, she gets her cell phone and says, huh, I need to text this conversation in a cinematic way, and uses an app called Text TV to display her text message conversation on the TV in her bedroom. I don't even so that remember she can that. It I, I kind of remember it's that. So, oh it's such a bizarre way to do it. And her character is... is deleting text messages off her phone because she knows that her uh, her boyfriend is very abusive and is going to go through her, her stuff. And I just can't understand why she would need to make it on a bigger screen so he could walk in and accidentally Maybe see it. Maybe she didn't just... have her glasses that day. Well, do you guys remember <laughs> web TV? Vaguely. Uh, in, in the earlier, like in the 90s, in the early, early days of the internet, you could get the web on your computer, but for those who couldn't afford a home computer or, you know, heaven forfend a laptop, which were really shishi items at the time, you could get it through a channel through your cable provider. And you could attach, and it was this really complicated technical process, you had to get all these widgets and attach them in a certain way and attach your phone to it so you could get the, the internet signal. And then you could plug in a keyboard and you could essentially surf the web just, just without, use your without, TV as a screen. Without basically. a map. Well, but it was also without a mouse. It didn't operate in exactly the mm. same way, but there was a TV version of the web. So maybe that was Paul Schrader's experience with the internet, was <laughs> he got it through his television mm -hmm. because he was a, subscri a subscriber to web TV. Maybe. It, maybe. It might just be that he was old. It's weird that, no, weird that Lindsay Lohan, who was obviously younger and part of the tech-savvy generation, didn't explain, no, that's not a thing, Paul. We don't do this. And then Paul was just like, I know I heard this once. And Lindsay's like, Fine. All right, you're the, you're the boss. You wrote Taxi Driver. I don't know. All I did was like grow up in an era you don't understand. Asshole. Like, I assume it was contentious. You're, um, you're not coming to my resorts when I grow up. <laughs> oh, man. All right, well, that's a great pick. That's a great pick. I guess it's my turn. Well, it's, it's a very, it's a bad pick. Well, it's a great yeah. pick for a bad movie. Okay. Um, so I was thinking about what do I pick? That I own because I own a lot of movies that aren't good, and I own a lot of movies that aren't good because I genuinely like enjoy watching them, and uh, I would actually argue in some respects that they are good in their own way. Uh, I own a lot of movies that I have had to acquire for work purposes. Like for example, I own most, if not all, of the Transformers movies, not because I enjoy most of them, but because I have to revisit them enough for various articles I've had to write and podcasts I've had to do over the years that I figure. It's best to just have them on hand and constantly yeah. have to rent them. Not have to go out of your way to get those things yeah. again. Yeah, that's why I own like most. Of the, I own a lot of like big blockbusters that I'm not super excited about, but, but they come up enough mm. in the pop culture space that it's better to have access to them than to not. So I was thinking about what do I own that I can't really justify. Like I don't understand why I have this in my house, <laughs> and the answer to that question. Uh oh is downsizing, which I not only own, I own two copies, and I don't know why. <laughs> and each copy of downsizing has a little gimmick on it. Now, uh, downsizing, for those who, who may not recall, is a film from Alexander Payne, Academy Award winner, 
Alexander Payne. He did about Schmidt and the Descendants and um, uh, Nebraska and Sideways, yeah. and he's actually a really wonderful filmmaker most of the time. And for whatever reason, uh, he thought it would be fun to do a movie about Matt Damon shrinking himself. And not in like a fun kind of, I'm going to fight a giant spider kind of way, but in like this really forced allegory for like... The class consciousness. Well, class, yeah. not so much class consciousness, but like, um, like the environmentalism. The idea behind the movie is because resources are dwindling on this planet, if we all shrank ourselves... And we're only that big. Yeah, like, like an inch or two tall, we would use significantly less resources. The money that we have would go further because instead of having to pay like a million dollars for a two-bedroom house in Los Angeles, you could live in a dollhouse, which costs 20 bucks. Hmm. So there's something to that. I feel like there's an Outer Limits Twilight Zone episode idea in there, but stretched out to a feature-length movie, it's just kind of boring and depressing and not funny, and they don't do a lot with the concept. Like, whole chunks of the movie go by with almost nothing done with the whole shrinking concept. Well, the, the, and the big twist is that it, even though they've shrunk down and they can stretch resources as far as they want to now, there's still a class divide. Yeah. And there's still people who don't have anything, even though they've also been shrunk. Yeah. We're, we're all trapped in these systems that we made. And uh, listen, so like, listen, on paper, I can kind of see why you thought it was a good idea. But in practice, it's not good. And I have no reason to ever watch this stupid and not very interesting movie again. But you have two copies. But I have two copies, and I don't know why. And I have one that's the Blu-ray DVD digital set, and I also have it in 4K Ultra HD, and I don't know why. But beyond that... You don't own a 4K player either, right? I don't. So it's weird. (laughs) Uh, So I see one of them? Yeah, go ahead. Take take this one. Um, But beyond that, I got them uh, uh, in the mail, and they came in, like, you know, a little manila envelope. And the manila envelope contained the DVDs, you know, like mail works. The DVDs also included tiny manila envelopes shrunk down. You can see this if you're watching the video, but there's no video. Is that your address on there? And it includes a miniaturized version of the (laughs) Blu-ray with, and I thought this was pretty clever, like a miniaturized version of the press release. So I gotta oh, give him credit. Cool. I gotta give him credit. That's fun. And that's I think clever. that's probably why I hung on to these, because like, <laughs> seriously, I don't really need this terrible fucking movie. I wouldn't recommend this movie. Oh, I'll never so watch funny. it again. But the gimmick was kind of fun. So I guess I kept it for that alone. But yeah, this this movie sucks. The, 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 I'm never watching this again. The, the mini video is really fun. It's the mini press release that gets me. Yeah, that's that's a stroke yeah. of genius. Whoever came up with that, Actually, whoever came up with that, is a smarter person than whoever made the film. <laughs> I think that's fair to say. Um, so that that I find absolutely hilarious. But I actually have no story beyond that. I just literally can't officially justify not only why I own downsizing at all, which I don't have a good reason for that, but also why I keep two copies on hand. I guess, like, for emergencies? What you can do is you get the uh, the 4K setup, you get the player yeah. and the TV, you put it next to your regular TV, and then you can do a side-by-side comparison in your own living room. What I should do is I should get the 4K TV, but then I should play, like, the 4K downsizing on the 4K TV, and then play, like, the Blu-ray on my laptop, put it next to it like it's miniaturized. 
or uh, you get an overhead projector and you reverse the image and you play it backwards to do that sort of the shining experiment like they do in yeah, Room 237 that. that's, to that's, see if, if the we fall down a rabbit hole kind of mirror really. each other and they you, meet in the middle. You just ruined do... movies for me. It's <laughs> not my idea. It was in Room 237. Well, they just ruined movies for me. Uh, so that's, that's my pick. That's, that's what I'm going to go with. <laughs> As the worst film you own, yeah, or just the most well, the, uh, the the most baffling physical uh, media I own. Like everything else, I know why I own that. Uh, Downsizing, I don't like that gimmick's okay, kind of fun. Uh, but yeah. seriously, I, this is the only time I've ever had to like actually talk about that gimmick in any meaningful way. So <laughs> I, I, I guess I can get rid of it now. You mentioned that you own two copies before, but I did not. You did not mention the little Blu-ray copies, and that was that was worth it alone just to see them. <laughs> Okay, so uh, so that's my pick. Uh, what, should, uh, what should I do next? This one or this well, one? I, well, we're going for the best now. We're going to do Yeah, Winnie has a bunch yeah, of right. Well, I, I, I brought a big pile just because I have a, a very strange collection. Tell you what, if you want to do a pile, we can do like a couple honorable mentions at the end. All right, um, I'll do this one. Uh, this uh, is a DVD of the Rudy Kobe TV specials signed by Rudy Kobe. Nice. Who's Rudy Kobe? Good question, Whitney. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Rudy Kobe uh, is a, a professional magician. He's still working today, and his whole shtick was he came up in the early '90s, and you can tell that he came up in the early '90s because his shtick was he has uh, uh, he's a, a mad scientist essentially, but he's a really cool mad scientist. Do you remember the pinball machine, Doctor Dude? No, no, of course you don't. Nobody remembers that. I love that. You like, made that up. These are the 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 cultural tent poles I, I have wrapped my life around, yeah. Doctor Dude. Uh, but Rudy Kobe was the coolest magician on earth. His idea, the idea was that he was lab man. He wore a jumpsuit and a lab coat, and he wore wraparound shades, and had this really high wild hairdo. He looked like you know who I bet liked Rudy Kobe was the makers of Invader Zim because he looks just like Dib's dad. A little bit, yeah, yeah. yeah. and. Uh, and his whole shtick was, uh, you know, he did these kind of weird, weird magic tricks where he grew extra limbs and then chainsawed them off. Uh, there were there was sort of an edge of violence, but only edgy if you're like a kid. Uh, and I think it was in 1993 or 1994 he had a TV special on Fox. Uh, he got famous enough to warrant a TV special. I taped that TV special knowing I would want to see it because. I saw some of the promos. Oh, look, he's got this uh, sexy robot partner, and he's going to cut her in half with a chainsaw, and he's going to sever his own head, and all, all of these really fun, bizarre things. There was a really cool uh, trick he did where uh, he called it the Hypnotron 2000, where he spun a big sort of spirally image right up on the screen, and if you stared at your TV screen, it would warp your vision just for just long enough that you could look at the back of your hand, and it looked like your skin was crawling around. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, just cute little things that you do in elementary school. Uh, I watched it, I taped it, I watched it, I loved it, I kind of memorized that thing. It was one of those things that I watched over and over again that I always was trying to get my friends into, and they never got into it. Uh, you can repeat that very message for just about anything I consumed <laughs> as a child. Look, I found this really weird thing, isn't it fun? No, that's a weird thing. I know! <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I really, really loved it. And then, of course, among the midst of all of my movings and growing into adulthood, the tape just went missing and it got, got lost somewhere. And uh, years later, when the internet came to be a thing and I started poking around at some of the things I liked when I was in high school, lo, I came upon Rudy Kobe's website. Now, Rudy Kobe on his website, it was one of those like old tripod websites. It was really kind of low, low grade, yeah. low tech kind of things. Well, they all and, it, and it was always under construction. They never actually constructed the full yeah. website. 
but there were a few things you could uh, you could buy. Like you could buy the Lab Man comic book from Image Comics. That was going to be a thing. Rudy Kobe was going to be translated into a comic book character, and they made one issue, and rather they made a preview issue. Mm-hmm. It's like maybe four pages, and they published that, and then that disappeared forever. I was able to track down one of those eventually, Ooh, but uh, damn. I was going to get you that for your birthday. At, at one point, I, I put my email address into the Rudy Kobe website, and then nothing happened. Years later, I get a a, a, a ping from the Rudy Kobe website saying, Hey, if you act fast, and if you have enough money, we'll send you a Rudy Kobe t-shirt, and we'll send you an actual video, like a DVD, of the Rudy Kobe TV special, which has never been officially released. Ooh. And we're, and you'll, you get to wear your Rudy Kobe t-shirt and Rudy Kobe will sign your, your DVD. Well, I was o- old enough and rich enough now that I could just plunk down the money and recapture that favorite TV special from way back in the 90s. And here it is. This is the Rudy Kobe TV special. Hmm. Which is just a paper sleeve with like Ruby yeah, Kobe's it's, it's, uh, 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 like logo it's on it. has got his logo. Uh, it, yeah. it has his autograph on it. He did sign it. And uh, through this, however... I realized just how easy it was to reach Rudy Kobe. Yeah. I friended him on Facebook. <laughs> uh, he he liked some of the things uh, I said on Facebook. So I just reached out via Facebook Messenger saying, Hey, I watched your special. I got your video. I got your t-shirt. Want to be on a podcast? And so and, and so we ended up doing a podcast so we ended with Rudy up, Kobe. We ended up doing a podcast with up, Rudy Kobe. We went to Rudy Kobe's lab, like where he like makes and stores all of his magic tricks and stuff, which it turns out was a disused crematorium. Crematorium, <laughs> which is where they like interred <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, that, so we it, we did a podcast wow. with Rudy Kobe we're, we're, where Alfred Hitchcock was cremated, cremated yeah. which is one of the weirder things we've ever done for a podcast. But that was neat. It was really neat. It I was, was nice. We're sitting in this big studio room. He's got all of his tricks just sort of laying around. So we yeah. see like severed heads and limbs just around the room. And he knew everybody in the nineties. Like he toured oh, yeah. around with like metal bands and stuff. He was cool. Yeah, he opened for. Yeah, he told us all these stories about how he opened for Marilyn Manson because he and Marilyn Manson were roommates briefly. Weird. And and we and you asked him a wonderful question. It's like, okay, your roommate's with Marilyn Manson. Who takes out the trash? <laughs> turns, turns out Rudy Kobe took out the trash. That doesn't Mar- Marilyn Manson was the one to like balance trash on top of the pile <laughs> rather than take the trash out. Nice. I so forgot, uh, I forgot about that actually. So th- this is like a, a beloved piece of my youth recapture. This is what nostalgia actually means, That's and uh, nice. I, I was really happy to have this. Now it's on DVD. I know where it is at all times. And I do have the Rody Kobe t-shirt, which I don't wear often because I don't want to wear it out. I respect that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Jacob, what's your what's yeah. your number one? So I had a very difficult time deciding on my good feature. Uh, from my first cursory glance through, I was pretty certain it would be the 4K re-release of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, but I was ultimately very disappointed by the bonus features on the disc. It was a lot of the... Um, the stuff they'd recorded in the early 2000s, and a lot of it is looking at the tech as it is then, and it's extremely dated now. And while the image itself is beautiful and the packaging is gorgeous, I, I just I just couldn't work up the energy to talk about it today. Um, I also decided to not talk about anything from the Criterion Collection because I've not finished the Bergman box set. I've only gotten up to Wild Strawberries, and uh, it's been 11 months now since I've seen that, and I just haven't had the energy to, to go into the next one. <laughs> they're a little less, they're, they're, they're still too wild. 
Yeah. Still too wild. Those strawberries right. are so wild. So I, I looked through my collection and I decided on a movie that you turned me on to. You definitely were the ones who uh, recommended this to me. And it's always talked about in very hushed tones. And I understand why after seeing it. And that would be Arrow's, uh, Arrow Video's recent re-release of Takashi Miike's Audition. Nice. Oh, bless so Arrow Video. Since, since this is my critically acclaimed, I want to have a brief, spoiler-free discussion of the movie, and then I want to hear your spoiler opinions on the movie. Because uh, as far as I know, you've, you've always just talked about the beginning and then go watch the movie, and I really want to know your thoughts about the rest of it. Yeah, that's fair. Um, it's your it's your podcast. You're you're calling the shots. We've got a spoiler warning. So again, if anyone like doesn't want to know how audition goes in a spoilery way, um, skip ahead or not. I guess. I mean, that's your call. It's your life. Make your decisions. Um, but uh, this is Jacob's show, and we're just living in it. So uh, interesting fact of the um, the Arrow Blu-ray includes both the international and Japanese trailers oh, for the feature. Hey. I've actually never seen the trailer. The the, uh, American trailer, the international trailer, is very much the way that you talk about the movie. It's uh, a widow, a widower is trying to find a new wife, so he uses his position as a film producer to audition women and see what's going on. Uh, The Japanese trailer opens with the man in the bag scare and ends with her chopping off his feet. They go completely the whole way through the movie in a minute and 40 seconds. Yeah. Pedal to the metal. Hmm. Uh, Roger Ebert had a a fun way of describing modern previews and the problems he had with modern previews. Uh, He said it was like a cheese plate. Uh, Studios like to think of their films as cheese samplers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when you go to the grocery store, you get a little uh, taste of cheese and you know everything you need to know about the cheese. The only difference is you buy the whole cheese wheel, all you get is more of the same cheese. He feels that that was the approach studios had for their films. You have to get a taste of what the entire film is going to be like, not a more sophisticated meal. And Not a he, tease, he, not he telling a story, just giving you, like, here's and, a big uh, yeah. chunk of it. And, you know, Roger Ebert didn't have a solution to that, but he did, uh, like many critics and many audiences at the time, complain that previews just gave away the whole movie. Which they used to a lot. Like, they don't so much anymore. They still, like, often do, but it used to be pretty common for a preview to take you pretty much all the way to the ending. Robert Zemeckis was accused of this a lot. Like, in the movie Castaway... Like, they yeah. take you to, like, practically the last scene in Castaway in the trailer. Like, they tell you whether or not he gets off the island, which is kind of a terrible thing to do for people who want to see that movie. But he argued that people want to know what they're going to get. Like, all of what they're going to get. And it didn't hurt the film. It made money. So there's a couple of schools of thought on that. Did, um, did I you think... ever see the preview for that movie? Nobody talks about the movie Last Chance Harvey any longer. I have no memory yeah, of Yeah, I, I, I never saw the movie, but I saw the preview a lot. So I feel like I've seen the movie. Uh, it's about a, a man who has to go to his daughter's wedding, and uh, he tries to... F- I think it's one of those things where he has to bring a date, and he ends up bringing Emma Thompson, and mm. uh, the dad is played by Dustin Hoffman. And Wow, no memory of this uh, movie at all. <laughs> and uh, there's all this uh, talk in the preview. Will he get to go? Will he be invited? Will his daughter accept him at the wedding? 
and then there's a scene in the preview of, and it turns out things are going to be okay, and there's a scene of him dancing with his daughter, and he looks over at Emma Thompson, and they're kind of growing close again, and he talks about how he's finally getting over his ex, and then there's a conversation in the preview after they already gave away the reveal of them at the wedding as to whether or not they're going to get together and he's going to stay in England or not. And the only thing you don't know is that last decision, yeah. which presumably happens like maybe in the last 10 minutes of the film. Yeah. It's like they gave you the entire well, they, story. They want you to know, again, this is the idea, I don't agree with it, but they want you to know what you're going to get. This is a feel-good kind of movie. There will be suspense, but it'll all work out okay, won't it? Hmm. I think there's two schools of thought on how trailers work. Well, there's three, really. There's the There are the two extremes, and there's the one in the middle. There's the extreme of, we're not going to tell you anything. And that's like what Star Wars does nowadays. Well, they'll mm -hmm. show you some like random isolated shots that may involve characters who are only in the movie for a second. Or the characters, the most important characters in the movie, may only be there for a second as well. Who the hell knows? But so many people are paying such close attention to those things that... Yeah. That's all they need to get people interested. Exactly. And so we end up these like long months of just disseminating this almost random collection of shots. Mm. And of course the movie doesn't even like sort of follow that sort of through line. So there's that. That try to be as vague as possible. Which I think if you can get away with if you're Star Wars, but if you're not Star Wars, it's a huge mistake. I think they tried that with Blade Runner 2049. Oh, Blade Runner 2049. Everything in it is a spoiler. I went to a press screening and they told me that the first scene is a spoiler. And I'm like, no, it's the first scene. The, you have to be able to tell people something that happens in a movie. Otherwise, I'm not reviewing a film. I'm just giving a vague reaction to it. I hated that. But uh, I think because Blade Runner 2049, for example, couldn't tell you the story. They thought the story of the film itself would spoil the film. Hmm. There was no way to connect to people who didn't already love Blade Runner. And as much as Blade Runner is now mostly accepted as a classic, it's not like a populist film. It's grim and depressing and subtle. And it doesn't have like this sort of mainstream traction that these like big blockbusters that sold a lot of action figures do. So that really completely backfired on them. There's also the Robert Zemeckis way where you give away literally everything. And that way the audience knows what they're going to get. But the people who might want to be surprised might go, well, fuck it, I don't really need to go, do I? And then there's in the middle where you do basically what we would do in a review, which is you set up the premise, you show a little bit in the middle, maybe you hint at what could happen towards the end, but you try to keep it vague. I think that's probably where the sweet spot is. I think we're way too caught up on spoilers in general. I know some people are like, oh no, Tenet might open internationally and we might get spoiled. And, like, <laughs> most of your life, Tenet will be spoiled. You're going to see it, and then you're going to see it again, and the movie will have been spoiled for you. If it's not good the second time you see the movie, it's probably not a good film. So I'm not super worried about it. Of course, I do want to see it without having whatever twists may be in there ruined. But if they are, the movie is still the movie, isn't it? Yeah. But when it comes to audition, the movie, it's, it's weird because that's a movie where they're hiding the genre of the film. That's not like a plot twist. Like, later on in 2049, you still knew it was sci-fi. Audition plays like a rom-com until there's a scene where he just calls up, and we're going spoilers, as we already did, but uh, he calls up the lady who auditioned to be, not unknowingly auditioned to be his girlfriend, and we just cut to her house, and she's on the phone with him, and the house is all, like, really stark and grimly lit, and there's a weird burlap sack in the back, and then all of a sudden the burlap sack moves, and it's the scariest damn thing ever because you had no idea what kind of film you were in. Um, so I feel like audition deserves to be sort of preserved as much as possible. Uh, the problem is, 
how how do you um you know let's let's put ourselves in the the head of the people who have to make a preview for audition or have to like design a box for audition mm-hmm. this film is uh, presumably going to be a lot more powerful if you go in blind right yeah if you, you don't know what it is or it's sold as a romantic comedy that betrays you yeah uh do you make it look like a romantic comedy yeah or and then betray you, the romantic and comedy then, and audience. Yeah, and then b- b- betray the people for, who want to see the romantic comedy. Yeah. Or do you do what they actually did and show the main character? Uh, the most popular uh, preview I've seen is the the young woman uh, in a smock holding a syringe. Yeah. So like mm. something. That's delicious. on the cover yeah, of the, that's of the, the DVD. DVDs. So, yeah. There you go. And yeah, that's which is, is right at the end of the movie. And to the end of the movie, uh, you know now that that character is kind of sinister, so you're yeah. looking out for it. And then you turn around and you look at the back. There's probably some images of torture, and all of the the, pre- the critics' reviews are chilling, horrifying. One of the piece scariest of movies ever made. So, yeah. so you have a really scary movie here that has really daring images of torture in it, in it, and yet uh, you can't say any of that if you want to have the biggest impact. Right. So I think the the best way about this, I think, is to you can't necessarily push right into the horror. No, but you have to essentially market a romantic comedy with a twist, like in the American preview. I don't uh, think that's the way. I, it's like, oh, and this guy's looking for a, an audition. Oh, and she might be a little bit sinister. <laughs> There's a living burlap sack in her house. Yeah. Come, fall. Coming, fall, 1990. Yeah, whatever, whatever it was. was. Yeah. I disagree. I think, the, I think the way you go with it, I mm-hmm. think you try to be vague, but what you do is you try to go full William Castle, where the idea that you can't know what this movie is about oh, isn't go. just like a marketing strategy like Blade Runner 2059, we're just going to be vague. We are telling you that we're vague. Okay. We cannot tell you what Audition is about. You have to see it. That's what The Matrix was as well. Like, what we can't tell you what yeah. The Matrix is. You have to see the movie to see The Matrix. And that mostly worked. It wasn't the biggest movie ever at the time, yeah. but it got people invested in it. It got people excited to go see it. Uh, Usual Suspects was the same way. Who is Kaiser Soze? The mystery was the selling point. Because that's, I think, the key to any good marketing strategy for a movie is to make seeing the movie, regardless of what kind of movie it is, feel like an event. Mm. Like, you can't be the one person who didn't see My Big Fat Greek Wedding. <laughs> like, it started off as just this little rom-com that nobody really talked about, and then suddenly everyone realized this has been in, like, the top three movies of the week for, for like, six, six, months, for like yeah. six months. Everyone should be seeing this. Apparently, this is a thing. So I think you want to. You do, that's what William Castle did. He took movies. Many of them were not good movies, but he made them into an event so that you had to go in order to see what the gimmick is. And I think that's what you do, where you just do like, you know, the Gabo routine, where audition, audition, audition. <laughs> do you are you ready for audition? You have no idea what you're getting into. Audition, and then you get there, and it's a romantic comedy. And you're like, no, they tricked me. And then halfway through, you're like, oh god. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I would, uh, or, or I, I go like the the Gaspar Noe route, mm. where it just be like mm. a lot of flashing images. It's like audition, I'll just play some romantic music. Audition, yeah. audition, like curly cued uh, sure. uh, fonts on the screen, kind of splayed across. Audition, show images of dating and happiness. Audition, and then like in one in every eight it eight images, it's like bloody images, and then like one very yeah. very like, brief a cut the like a subliminal, like a subliminal exorcist. Audition, 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 audition. <laughs> yeah, just kind of, kind of freak people out. Yeah, without necessarily communicating everything that's in it. It's, yeah, you can communicate a tone 
without necessarily telling a story. It's true. It's true. All right, so that's where we go with that. But that's a great pick. Um, so how many how many uh, Takashi Miike films have you seen? Out of curiosity, I don't know, like five. Out of fifteen hundred, he's made. No, he's made. He's made, he's made like he's made like a hundred movies now. Made, uh, I think he's up to one hundred and ten now, I, something I, like that. I, ambitiously, yeah. I'd say I'd see maybe ten, but that's just off the top yeah, of my head. I, I think some cool. of them haven't been properly been released over here. Right. Like they, he did a Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney movie that mm. I don't think ever got an official release in America. I've always curious yeah. to see it. Yeah, I think I've seen about a dozen um, f- from you know, some of the better known ones like uh, like Audition. Mm-hmm. Um, the Samurai movie was very, very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, I even saw this really obscure superhero film he did called Zebra Man. Uh, he, he's, yeah, uh, he, he's a mixed bag, he, but I guess he would have to be if he, he's as prolific as he is. Yeah, you make you a make hundred movies. Some of them are going to stink, uh-huh. but... Yeah, you, know, you also get good after a while, don't you? But then you get something really wonderfully peculiar, like Happiness at the Katakuris, which was my first Miike film. I still haven't seen that one. It's really good. I saw them It's very bizarre. It's yeah. got like animated sequences. There's a cool. there's a sequence where it just sort of breaks into karaoke, complete with like the lyrics on the screen, mm-hmm. and it looks like a karaoke video. It's really wonderful. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, regarding Speaking the actual, yeah, sorry, Jacob, you're in charge. Yeah. Uh, it's all good. Um, there's a wonderful interview that Arrow did uh, with Mika. It's about 30 minutes long, um, talking about his thoughts in the movie now, 18 years later when they recorded it. And he had this really wonderful quote. Um, my representative film is my next film, so I believe the most important work will be in the future. I know Audition is one of my past treasures. However, it would be nice to start again without the strictures gained from that film. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- it was... It was it was America's introduction to him for a lot of people, yeah. you know. Like it was, it was the big the big crossover hit over here. Yeah, I can see why you might be frustrated by that because uh, you know if if all of the interviewers are coming at him and saying, "Hey, when are you going to do with your next audition?" It's like that was like thirteen films ago. Dude. I, I don't even make horror movies all that often, yeah. you know. Like yeah, he's made gangster movies and he's made horror movies. Yeah, he made a samurai superhero yeah. movie a couple of years ago. It was really good. Blade of the Immortals is very excellent. <laughs> Which one? I just rewatched uh, the, uh, Blade of the Immortals. The yeah, Samurai that's a good Super one. League. I like that one a lot. <sighs> okay, but think, yeah, regarding like the America, ending, yeah, sorry, what? Yeah? Do you think there's? Do you think there's an American director like Takashi Miike who's able to hop around and be so prolific in so many different genres? Well, we, we were talking about uh, Aldrich recently. Yeah. Ald- Aldrich does that a lot. Um, Don Siegel did it a lot. Yeah. Like he worked in a lot of different genres. Robert Wise wasn't prolific, but he did everything. Like he did mm. horror, classic horror movies, classic musicals, sci-fi, um, genre uh, like yeah. big franchise pictures. He did yeah. Star, Trek, Star Trek: The Motion Picture. But the thing with me, Ek, is he's just someone who works so much. Then and yet, he actually still manages to make some classics. We have a lot of people who work a ton, mm. but. If you work a ton in America, you're probably working on extremely low-budget productions. When I think about people who are, like, madly prolific, I think about people like David Dakota, who produce, who directs, like, multiple films a year and everything from, like, family movies to monster movies to and gay I, erotic thrillers. All, and, all of them feature uh, men in their 20s taking showers. Yeah. Um and listen, a lot of them are really, really fun, but I, I, I think he's done maybe well, like a handful of like the 
probably like 80 movies or so he's directed. Mm-hmm. It's like five I'd recommend as decent yeah. movies, and none of them are great. The the um, An American filmmaker, uh, we, we don't talk about him much anymore, but who was incredibly prolific and did occasionally churn out classics was Woody Allen. Yeah. Uh, Woody Allen, uh, there, were, there was a span there, like, starting in like the mid 90s going all the way like for the next 20 years yeah he was just putting out at least one film a year sometimes two but and some of them were really good along the way but let's be fair here he didn't actually stretch that much what he did was he did stories about love triangles and then applied different styles to it yeah he just that's pretty much all he, just, he ever he just did. kept on doing the woody allen film he didn't yeah. Yeah, it's not like there's a Woody Allen slasher. Occasionally there's like a murder mystery, but that was But even then it was kind of a love triangle kind of thing, Mm -hmm. and it was basically just variations on a theme throughout his entire career. Um, uh, And less said about him outside of that, the better. Um, But, um, yeah, I'm trying to think. There's there's a lot of people who are really prolific. If you go back to the 30s and 40s, John Ford made tons of movies in all kinds of genres. Well, you just mentioned William Castle. Um, You know, we know William Castle for, like, his gimmick films, the films where he started putting his face in the previews, Mm -hmm. saying, hi, I'm William Castle, master filmmaker. I'm going to invite you to see The Tingler. The Tingler was his 40th movie. Uh, he was incredibly prolific uh, up until that point, doing just sort of work for hire on studio westerns and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, he was doing westerns, he was doing horror films, that's why he was such a good producer. He just knew the system inside and out. So by the time it was time for him to make a William Castle production, he kind of knew what sold, he knew what he mm-hmm. was interested in, he knew exactly how to handle the films he wanted to make. Well, along those same lines, you can look at someone like Roger Corman, who you know, you interned for, mm-hmm. but like he produced tons of movies, but he also directed a lot of movies. And yeah, they were low-budget, B-to-Z-grade schlock for the most part, but he made so many different films in a variety of different genres. He did westerns, he did alien invasion movies, he did Edgar Allan Poe adaptations, he did like serious dramas about racism in America... And after a while, he did get better at it, and some of his later movies are genuinely very good. Like, his Poe movies, like, a handful of those are solid, mm. top-to-bottom horror classics. I love I would, of Terror. I, uh, uh, Mask of the Red Death I love, mm. Tomb of Ligeia I love, Pit of the Pendulum I love. Those are all genuinely great movies from people who, from a filmmaker who a lot of people write off as, oh, he made low-budget crap. He also made low-budget crap, but even his low-budget crap isn't entirely devoid of ideas. When you look at, like... It's still low-budget crap. It's low-budget crap, but when you... It's interesting low-budget crap in a way a lot of others. You look at something like The Gunslinger, which was a feminist western starring Beverly Garland Mm. as a woman who takes up the mantle of her uh, murdered sheriff husband. Mm. There's There's a lot in that movie that's actually really progressive and really cool. The movie is cheap and not well made, but it's the <laughs> ideas are in there. The ideas are in there in Teenage Caveman, which predates the Twilight Zone, but feels like a Twilight Zone episode. And mm. again, it's cheap and bad, but he didn't like just throw out anything. His movies actually did have at least some thought that went into them. So he's someone I would go in there. All right. Yeah. Um, anyway. I would argue, however, that Miyuki makes better films than Roger Corman. I think that's fair to say. I think that's fair. He's also probably made a few worse than, like, at least Roger Corman's best stuff. Okay, fair. Can we yeah. can say he probably, there's probably at least one Miyuki film that isn't quite as good as Mask of the Red Death? No, I didn't see, like, the One Missed Call movies he did. But, yeah, I know, just... yeah. Anyway, but that's just hedging our bets, though. We, we haven't done all the research. We're just saying the odds are good there's at least one Miyuki film that is maybe better than Roger Corman's best work. Is that fair? We all agree on that. That's likely. Okay. Oh yeah. Cool. 
All right, Jacob, anything else you want to talk about Audition before we move on? It's a great movie. You should watch it. The Arrow release is wonderful. Um, I'm happy it came back in print. I was digging around for the Scream Factory release for a long time, and I'm glad it's readily available in Region A and Region B. That's awesome. All right, is it my turn? Your turn. Okay. What's the best movie in your collection? Okay, that's not the best movie in my collection. It's my favorite piece of physical media that I own. And I'm just going to go grab it because I've left it over here because I didn't have to show it. Oh. (laughs) We can't all talk about Citizen Kane. Okay, so. Well, I thought you were going to grab the head over Well, I wasn't sure if we were doing one or more, so I had a couple just in case we wanted to talk about multiple uh, releases. So, um, Winnie had a VHS. I'm going to do him one better because oh, I got Laserdiscs. going to show me up with oh, his Laserdiscs. Oh, I actually have a few Laserdiscs. I actually don't even have a Laserdisc player anymore, and I got rid of my Laserdisc collection, which for many years had dwindled to just the stuff that wasn't on DVD yet. Uh-huh. Um, and, yeah, there were a few things that I lost there, but eh, in the end, it was mostly taking up space, and I wasn't really using it. There were two Laserdiscs that I hung on to. This is a tie, but they're directly related. Uh, I hung on to my Dean Cameron laser discs <laughs> because not only was for a long time this was the only way you could get Ski School and Rockula, but yeah. I was fortunate enough. I was fortunate enough to go to a midnight screening of Rockula with Dean Cameron in attendance, and I did something I almost never do. Like I've done this maybe a dozen times over the course of my entire life. I asked him to sign something. And he signed my copy of Rockula. It's not, like, terribly personalized. It just says, to William Dean Cameron, you rule. Uh, he also signed my copy of Ski School, which was nice of him. May I see these? Of course you have. Uh, and I rem- I'll never forget, like, what he said. He said, there's only two people on Earth who own these laser discs: You and Pendulette. And that was a very specific thing to say. That was a very specific thing to say. So, uh, if you're not familiar... There's a good glory shot on the back of of Tony Basil with her vampire teeth. She's so damn great. Uh, So, if you're not familiar with these movies, I talk about Rockula a lot. I almost never talk about Ski School. Oh, yeah. You sure do. Because it's in the inferior of the two. But uh, Rockula is a... It was made in the 80s. It was ultimately released in 1990. Uh, It is a musical comedy starring... Uh, Dean Cameron, with a lot of excellent supporting actors like uh, Susan Terrell, Bo Diddley, Thomas Dolby, and Tony Basil of Hey Mickey fame. And of course, Thomas Dolby did uh, She Blinded Me with Science. Um, it is about a vampire who has been alive for hundreds of years, but he's still a virgin because the woman that he truly loves keeps getting killed two weeks after he meets her, and then she's resurrected again. Uh, She's reincarnated. She's reincarnated. She's reincarnated every time she dies. He meets her, and she dies within two weeks because every single time, every single time, she is murdered by a pirate who has a rhinestone peg leg, and the murder weapon is a ham bone. Every single time this happens. Which is pretty specific, I think we all have to admit. And and it's looking like uh, Thomas Dolby uh, might have caught wind of this. Yeah, he and might he, be the next he in, might the, be in the line. The next murder pirate. Uh, so this time, the woman that he's in love with is a pop star, and he decides that in order to woo her, he needs to become a pop star as well. So he starts a a vampire themed novelty rock band called Rockula, and the music is actually really fun. It's stupid. But it's really fun, and it's filled, it's filled with a lot of great lyrics, some of which were written by Dean Cameron himself. Like, uh, you could read the commentary by William Sapphire. Are you the DJ? No, no I'm, I'm the, the vampire. vampire. Yes. 
Um, so I love this movie. That, that one's specifically from the Rapula number. Yes. Uh, I love this movie with every fiber of my being. It takes place around Halloween. It's a great Halloween watch. And for many, many years, this was completely unavailable on home video, except for this Laserdisc. So I was very, very proud to have it. And this is probably the Laserdisc I watched more than any other. Um, so I kept it around for nostalgic reasons and also because he signed it. Uh, the Shout Factory eventually put it out on Blu-ray, and I was furious that nobody told me. Like, it was coming out. <laughs> because I would have reached out to Shout Factory. You have to let me, like, do interviews for this, like, conduct interviews with the people who made this movie or Just do a commentary essay, or yeah. something. Please let me be involved. I've been this movie's only booster for, like, 20 years, and nothing. I was so mad. But uh, Dean Cameron was the, also... Because yeah. that wasn't one of their collector's editions releases. It was just the movie, right? I think it was. I think it was. I was really bummed. Like, you, 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 I was right there. I would have done it. I would have done it for free. Um, <laughs> so that, that, really, that really bummed me out. But uh, anyway, there was this brief period in the late 80s where it looked like Dean Cameron was going to be the next big kind of teen comedy thing. Uh, he was a breakout star from the Carl Reiner movie Summer School, which is really funny. Mm. Um, and uh, he had like a couple of films that thought like maybe these would be the big Dean Cameron hits, and neither of them was. Rockula got delayed and then barely released. Uh, it's also very strange. It's, it's a tough so sell. It's a tough sell, but it could have found a cult audience. It might have done. It might have done okay. Uh, but the one that he made that was like the most like sort of cash in. Everyone's doing it. Uh, he made a movie called Ski School, which is basically Animal House on a ski slope. It's a it's a sex farce. There's a yeah. lot of you know nudity and flirting what, and pranks. What's weird about the nudity? It looks like it was probably designed to be a PG thirteen movie, and then someone realized that this might not sell, so we need to add more sex. So all of the sex and nudity, the proper nudity, hmm. is like off to the side and easily edits out of the movie. <laughs> like it just it deals with this one ancillary character. I think it's Paul Mer is it Paul Mercurio is in this. Some just random mm. dude, Tom Bresnahan. Yeah, dude. Anyway. I remember a, uh, Ava Fabian, who was a Playboy playmate at yeah. the time, was one of the one of the actresses. So uh, the idea of ski school is very very simple. Dean Cameron uh, runs a uh, division at a ski school called Section Eight. Get it? Uh-huh. Uh And uh, they're the wild party guys, and uh, the snooty a hole ski guys don't like the wild party guys because they don't take skiing seriously enough, and it all ends up. With them like getting a ringer on their team and having a big thing, and it's not the plot sucks. The plot is not why we're here. We're here because Dean Cameron is actually really, really funny in this. In fact, the whole cast is actually pretty funny, and there's a lot of like kind of memorable silly bits, like um, the indoor snowball fight, where they just make it like a food fight, but everyone like brings snowballs in from outside. Snowballs, get your red hot snowballs, which is vaguely funny. And of course, there's also the Lombada sequence. Which oh, is the, during that six month period. Yeah, so there was this brief period where uh, they, they there's a whole flashback sequence uh, to Dean Cameron as a caveman inventing l the lumbata, which I will always remember. And there's a bit in the film where the two the two main heroes uh, like speak synchronicity synchronically synchronized it's in a synchronized fanner manner, and they say lines in the same ways. And this is actually one of the few things my brother and I ever properly bonded over was uh, <laughs> saying those lines cool. over the time. So like we would just say. Payback. Yes, I think so. Even though we never had anyone to pay back. We actually led very, uh, very, uh, you know, sheltered lives. Um, I saw Ski School for the first time the way people ought to. Late night on Cinemax? Late at night on yeah. Finnish cable television. Even better. Yeah. Even better. So I was at a sleepover with some, with some friends of mine that I had just met in Finland. 
We stayed up late playing Star Control 2, and then nice. once the parents had gone to bed, we turned on finished cable and watched Ski School. Yeah, a mostly dumb PG-13 comedy with some naughty bits. Yeah. Uh, there is a Ski School 2. It is not as good, but Dean Cameron does come back, and he does manage to rescue it a little bit. Uh, but Ski School 1 is... Look, it's a Skinamax, like, sleaze comedy that's just better than you'd think it is. Like, it's not great, but it's better than anything it is. Rocky, on the other hand, genuine cult classic. Uh, how does it compare to Zapped? You know, I've never seen all of Zapped. Really? I thought, I thought even as a kid, I thought Zapped was oh, kind of fucked up. Oh, what, what a mercy. Yeah, <laughs> I never quite got into Zapped, or Zapped again. Um, and there's a third Zapped. Well, they remade it, didn't they? They remade it for the Disney Channel. It took out all the weird sex. remake. Because it's a sex farce, but they took out all the sex. Well, that's fine, yeah. but it's weird that you like are bringing this sex farce's history into the Disney Channel. Uh, uh, so weird. Is, anyway. it, is it on Disney Plus? I think Zapped. I think it is, actually. I think so, um, It might be. We'll have to look up that new Zapped. Yeah. Or if the old one is. The problem is, if we do that, I'll have to I, watch the old Zapped. I remember seeing a, a commentary about mm. Zapped with Grey Drake and with Diablo Cody. Like they, <laughs> and, and Gary Anabeta. <laughs> yeah, Grey Drake and, and Gary Anabeta and wow. Diablo Cody as part of the Popcorn Mafia had this big, long discussion about Zapped. And she pointed out that the DVD like for Zapped, the home video release of Zapped, was the most pathetic thing. <laughs> Because you'd put it in, and the first thing you'd see is one of those static menu screens, you know, when they really cheaped out. They didn't yeah. have any kind of animation at all. And they di actually didn't have any clips from the movie. They just had a picture of Scott Bayo's face right in the middle of the screen, just sort of floating in midair. No body, just his yeah. face. And behind him, in yellow letters, just ha, 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 like laughter. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> like a government joker. Yeah. Comment. That's hilarious. <laughs> And, uh, and Diablo Cody said, comedy is the only genre you could get away with that. Like, you wouldn't have a, a horror film that says, ah, oh no, ah, or, or a tragedy that says, boo-hoo. <laughs> so, yeah, Ski School, Zapped, there was a period, Revenge of the Nerds, all of those really horrible sex comedies uh, from the 1980s. Ski School's a little better. Yeah, Ski School's so. better than the majority of, like, the straight-to-video ones. It's it's not great. It's not great. It's just something... We, I was watching it. It was, like, 10 o'clock on Cinemax, so you know what you're getting. And I was like, you know what? This is actually funny. Like, it's not hilarious, but I'm laughing, and I'm enjoying it, and I remember some of the dialogue. Uh, so, yeah. So I, have a, I have a soft spot for Ski School, but is the real treasure. There you go. Yeah. So, those are my picks. Yeah. I brought some others just in case, but, you know, we don't yeah. have to talk about those No, right we're, now. they're dead. Um, <laughs> uh, Jacob, was this satisfying? Is this what you wanted? Absolutely. Thank uh, you very much for having me. me. I'm really, really glad to hear it, man. Um, so, uh, uh, Jacob, uh, uh, are you, do you want to, like, do you have anything to plug? Do you have, like, a SoundCloud or a Twitter or anything like that? Sure. <laughs> uh, I am right now, for the most part, on Facebook, and I'm trying to move off of that gradually. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at Jacob Lovegren, comma, film critic. Uh, I'm at Twitter at I am Jay Lovegren. And uh, I've been, for the last two years, doing new release reviews just for fun. Uh, but I've not seen many new releases this year for some obvious reasons. So I'm getting ready to start a, uh, a written blog where I'm reviewing every movie in my collection in alphabetical order. Ooh, oh, fun. Okay, so nice. I will, Big uh, I'll be formally announcing that on Twitter here in the near future. Uh, look for that in early September. That's awesome. What I'm curious, point of order here, you're obviously going to keep adding to that collection. What if you get through all the A's and then you finally get a copy of, like, 
I don't know, all, all the president's Eve, yeah. men, or all the Eve, all about Eve. Like, do you have to just immediately go back and do it, or what's the plan? I'm, I've, I've decided that I'm just going to save them for later, wait to get back around, but I was sure this Criterion sale to get as many of those A through <laughs> nice. yeah. as possible. <laughs> Nicely done. I, I, I always admire uh, uh, people who can who will take on like big projects like this because it I think it makes us more well-rounded as critics. Yeah. As opposed to just, I'm going to talk about the Marvel movies over and over and over again. And like, no, why don't you do something like a really deep dive? Like, why don't you like review all the Gamera movies and just see there where it you takes know. you? Yeah. Like, you never know. Which is why a lot of our podcasts are formulated that way. We're really big on sort of completionism and historical context. And um, we think that's a really important journey to take. Yeah, for sure. I, I'll give you a, a little preview. The first week is... 300, 10 Cloverfield Lane, 12 Years a Slave, 13 Assassins, and 2001 A Space Odyssey. Okay, so you're going through the the numerical order where if it starts with a digit, it goes first. I put it in Google Sheets, and then that's the order I'm going with. Okay, fair enough. Fair (laughs) enough. That's totally reasonable, but it is a a decision to make. Mm -hmm. Because when I alphabetize, I actually put the numbers in alphabetical order. So 2001 would be in the T's. That's the decision I made. It's not right or wrong, but it is interesting. I, I did look up the style guide. Apparently, if it starts with a year, it's supposed to go where it's supposed to be. So 2001 should be under T. But I don't feel like getting into it that No, that again, these personal. are your decisions. You get to make those decisions. That's cool. All right. Well, listen, everybody, thank you so much for joining us for your Critically Claims. So very special thank you to Jake and Lovegren for a fun episode. Uh, this is not something that occurred to me uh, to do. Yeah. So this is a, this was a neat. This is a, this is a creative endeavor. And I'm really, really glad we got to do it. Um, I actually learned some things about you, Whitney. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, just because when I was trolling around the weird subcultures of Los Angeles in my late teens and early 20s. You had adventures. Uh, so in any case, uh, yeah, if you want to uh, uh, sponsor an episode of Your Critically Acclaimed, uh, you can totally do so at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. This is a top tier uh, uh, item, so uh, you have to contribute at the top tier to do it, but we do have a lot in the pipeline. We're trying to do about one a week. Uh, but even so, it's going to take us a while uh, to get through all of these. We're very, very grateful for all the support we've had from patrons just like Jacob. Uh, so thank you again a million times over. Appreciate it from the bottom of our hearts. Um, and uh, but we also have a ton of other exclusive stuff there as well. We have Star Trek podcasts, Disney podcasts, all kinds of podcasts. Oscars podcasts. Podcasty, podcasty podcasts. Podcasts about podcasts. Not yet! <laughs> We haven't done that. We haven't done down that rabbit hole yet. Awards shows where awards shows win awards. Get my gun. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and of course we have all the other stuff as well. We're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, Jacob, why don't you take us out here? It's, you get to you get to decide how we sign off today. Oh, uh, live long and prosper. Mm-hmm.